Welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group Thursday Night Alcoholics and God's Speaker Step Series. Okay, we're going to have Kat come up and tell us our joke. Okay, a $5 bill walks into the bar and orders a shot. The bartender says, get out of here, we don't serve your kind. The $5 bill says, come on, can I just have one shot? The bar center says, no, get out, this is a singles bar. <laughs> I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Kat. Thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start our two-minute meditation, so please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that make noise that might or will distract others. Take this time to get connected to God. Let the craziness of the day drift away and ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. Is everybody ready? Okay. Enjoy your time with God.
have a fog light prayer that's on the screen. God, let your love shine through me like a fog light, so those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. There is a solution from the big book, page 17. The tremendous fact for everyone of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries those who, to those who suffer from alcoholism. I've asked Nikki to read Appendix 2, Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one, so it's kind of important to know what one is. Um, spiritual experience the term spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book which upon careful reading shows that the, the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James, James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery. 
but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Herbert Spencer, pages 567, Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay, please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so set your your phones to airplane mode or just simply turn them off. We take this meeting seriously, so if you need to, um, you know, go out, just go to the parking lot or we have the lobby. Um, Okay, so I'm excited to introduce um, Peter M. He's going to be... um, doing his 12th 12th session. So let's welcome Peter. So I have a joke for you. (laughs) Take notes. Um, So drunk walks into a bar and there's a big sign behind the bar that says all you can drink for one dollar. The drunk tells the bartender, give me $3 worth. <laughs> It'll get better, I promise. My name is Peter, recovered alcoholic. I'm very familiar. I've been sober and part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and before we get going, uh, it's important for me to uh, uh, thank the group for having me here for the last uh, three months. Uh, back again, I think it's the fifth time I've done this. And um, it's always a treat for me to be here um, for the message that the speakers come in. You have a great one coming up next week in Padar, and it just keeps rolling out that way. And to be, you know, in the middle of all of this is, is a treat. Um, I come in here, and it, it feels like I'm at an AA conference uh, because the members here take time to do this. Um, this is their passion. And uh, to be a part of that, um, it's, I, I feel honored. And so I hope I've been able to bring an AA meeting each and every week and cover the, the literature and, uh, and share some experience with you. Um, I always like when I'm sitting out there to hear mechanics. We need them. They're vital. But to hear the experiences behind the mechanics, what I call what's between the lines. Um, <clears throat> I hope to never be someone who's a, a big book lawyer. None of my sponsors have been that way, where they can recite everything and know exactly what Bill was doing in 1943 on a Tuesday afternoon and um, argue with you and debate with you. But as any enlightened person would do, they will not argue about God. Uh, They will let you have your opinion because they're okay where they are with God. And um, so I don't look to get into the debates. I will challenge and do whatever spirit moves me to do. But... um, to share the experience with this information, because that is really the thing that that flips us. Hmm? Getting the information and then putting it into use, all because of God, and then the life changes, and hopefully I can bear witness to that uh, to others. Uh, There's a big thing that I've learned over the years between willingness and willfulness, and it takes complete willingness to do this work. It takes, it's difficult to practice principles in all our affairs. It's difficult to write an inventory. It's difficult to share the inventory, to work with someone. Um, it's tiring. It's, it's exhausting. It's inconvenience at some times. And sometimes you just don't want to do it. 
Um, and quite frankly, I will tell you, based on my track record getting here, um, I'm willful. I want to push the way I want to push and take in what I want to take in. And even now, 30 years later, uh, and this isn't, you know, false humility, I do not have the ability in me alone to do any of this, to show up each week, to do an inventory, to call my sponsor religiously on a Monday night and be prepared with information to share with him, to be willing to be transparent with him, to work with people. Most of the guys I work with are, are calling me at 7 in the morning and then 7.30 and 8 o'clock because I'm good in the morning. I'm up at 4 and 5, so I'm ready to roll. By 7, 8 o'clock at night, I'm getting tired or I'm doing something like this. And um, I, don't, I don't have that in me to do, not on my own. But what happens to someone like me is we get, I get beaten down so bad um, in June of 88, my separation from alcohol, that I am brought to a place of willingness to do anything. And that doesn't come from me. It's the power that we access or finds us. But we get surrendered and suddenly we find ourselves doing things that we normally never would do, like showing up on time and getting to another meeting and getting an assignment done. And whatever the sponsor tells us, we do it, even though we think the sponsor's loony, but we follow directions because they know better than me. And that's a moment of clarity we have that continues. And that's just an awakening of the spirit. I was sharing with the fella today, um, that at the beginning for me and for countless others, we can't even feel or, 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 or see or even have the realization how much God is working in our life. And we need to remember, I need to remember God's going to any lengths to have a relationship with me. God's going to any lengths to have a relationship with you. Any lens is any lens. God will pull things away, push things this way, turn things upside down, whatever he has to do to pursue us to get with us and have a relationship with us. But at the beginning, it feels like everything's turned upside down. And walking a spiritual path is so new, it's foreign. And being, getting a force feeding of humility feels weak and cowardly. And praying every day, why am I doing this? And I'm doing all of this work, is what I would tell myself, but I'm not experiencing God like Jody Oldtimer with 30 years, who's sure God's working in his life. And they would have to tell me, but do you see what you've been doing? You've been praying. You've been going to meetings. You're writing inventory. You found a sponsor. Who's doing that for you? God is on fire in your soul. You just haven't got there yet to experience, oh my God, to stand in the sunlight of the Spirit. And what my mind would always do, and it would still do now, is try to dismiss all of that. This is not going to work. This is futile. My name is Peter Marinelli. Nothing good ever happened. I never finished anything I started. Who are you kidding? And it went on and on to pull me out. But the Spirit screams louder than the illness. The same way desperation screamed louder than my illness on June 23rd, 1988. And we chop wood and carry water, chop wood, carry water, plow the field, and God does the growing. And suddenly we get to a place somewhere in this work, somewhere in 4 through 9, my experience has been, you get to a place where you're standing in the light and you know it. And by the time I have that realization, all of you have seen it for a while like that young fella today I was talking to. He has no clue how much light he's standing in. Conversely, when we're not standing in light, we will do ugly and icky things too. And my job is not to get really, really angry with you because you're doing as best as you can based on the light you're standing in. And if I always do what I always did, I'm always going to get what I always got. And I try to really uh, share that strongly, passionately with new folks. If you continue to do what you always did, you're always going to get what you always got. If you're not sick and tired, then off you go. 
But if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, perhaps you will find our way and join this and get traction here and be part of this thing that we belong to, the sacred rooms called Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, you know, like for myself, I know I need to work with other people. Even when I'm dead tired, I don't want to hear one more inventory, hear the inventory. And you get to the next meeting and you do the 12-step call. And then you call your sponsor. There's plenty of times on a Monday night. Mondays, what I do for a living, Mondays usually hits the fan because of the weekend just passed and there's a lot of putting back together again and what I do for a living. And by the time I get home at, you know, four, five, six o'clock, whatever it is, I don't want to look at anything. I don't want to hear anything, but I have my sponsor at seven. And sometimes I wish he would just call me and say, I can't make it tonight. But he doesn't do that, and the clock says seven. And how I do this is I have a little desk in, 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 my, in my home, and uh, I have my, 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 my Bible, I have my big book, I have my inventory book, and a pen. And when seven o'clock goes click, I dial his number. And every time I dial, he says, hello, Peter. He says, magically just appears, hello, Peter. Yeah. And that's what I do, and every time I do that, when I'm not in the mood to call the sponsor, when I'm off the phone an hour later, I'm so grateful I called my sponsor. Because through the, the stuff of the sharing, and the things you don't want to share, and him pushing and pulling and challenging, what I'm getting is soul food. And I'm better off after the call is done. So much so, usually Marion's at the Monday night meeting upstairs. When Marion comes home, we'll talk about what what, I, what Mickey and I shared with each other. Because there's always a wealth of experience and information. How would I do without a sponsor? I'd probably be drunk. I've had a sponsor uh, pretty much since I got in here. Um, living in Minnesota, I got attached to some folks, and there was this one guy, Kip S., who was kind of steering me in the right direction, and uh, he was helping me turn me on to uh, Joe and Charlie tapes. I didn't even know who these guys were. He said, I want you to listen to these cassette tapes. Newcomers, there's something called cassette tapes we had years ago. <laughs> and I put these big monster headphones on. Remember those things? They're like an air pilot, you know. And, um, and I'm listening to these two guys talk, and I have this book in front of me called The Big Book, and I don't know what is what in this book, but they're talking about page something, and I open it up, and they're reading and telling stories, and they're flipping the page, and I say, oh, my God. I thought I discovered plutonium this particular day. It was incredible. But it fed the soul. And when I came home from uh, Minnesota, uh, about a year later, I went away uh, for treatment and sober living and all of that. I was one of these guys to do 30 days and get cured. Um, I stayed away for a long time. I was told to stay away. And then after a while of being away, I wanted to stay away because I liked the fellowship that was growing up around me. Mm, I had a little job mowing lawns. I mowed down half the state of Minnesota one day. I didn't know what I was doing. I was driving cab service and I didn't know my way around. I was getting lost all the time. I was, uh, you know, working on construction sites. I'm not the type of guy to be on a construction site. I'm more worried about a manicure than lifting two by fours, you know, and get my nails dirty. I can't do this. Um, but I, you know, you, you make pocket money and 30 days became 60 days. Hmm. I remember one day working on this construction at Motel 8. We were carrying mattresses and, and stuff into the, the hotel. And the uh, crew bought us lunch. And we had uh, soft drinks in front of us, what they call pop out there. 
and, uh, and sandwiches. And I had this God burst upon this moment that I'm not drinking a beer. I'm actually eating lunch and I'm working. And I had about like 80 something days at the time. I remember talking about coming up on 90. And I cannot believe that this was actually happening to me. I'm working. I'm actually working. I'm not hustling. I'm working. I'm having a soft drink and a sandwich. And I'm going to finish lunch and go back to work and work till around 4 o'clock. And then the van would pick us up and take us back to the house. And then tonight we're going to me. I was actually excited about jumping in the van with the rest of the guys because I made some money on my own and was going to a meeting sober. And 90 days was looming a few days away. I couldn't believe this was happening to me. I didn't know that was a godly event. But the old time is, especially at this Three Legacies meeting, said, kid, God's all over you. Don't you see what's going on? I was under the delusion that in order to experience God, I had to be Charlton Heston, the Ten Commandments, stand on the mountain, part the seas. Well, something incredible had to happen that was visual. That's all the ego stuff. And I look back on that, the innocent climb, how wonderful that was. There's something called innocent climb, and there's a, a basketball coach um, that, I, that I just idolize. And um, he talked about the innocent climb, which a lot of us youngins are in, involved in, and we lose it because of ego and attachments to external things. You know, when you come into Alcoholics Anonymous and you're done and you get with a bunch of folks and you have running partners in recovery, you go from meeting to meeting to meeting. You go to, to, we used to go to Perkins in Minnesota and get a pot of coffee for 20 people and share it, you know, and we'd stay there as long as we possibly could. And, and it was just running together. And if Joe was speaking, all of us would go see Joe. If Bill was speaking, we'd all go see Bill. It wasn't like, how come I'm not speaking? You know, somebody got a car, six of us would pile in a car. No shame, no embarrassment. We just go do it. You know, look for the guy with 10 years who was like, oh my God, he's got 10 years. Get around this guy. He's a, he's a you know, a dinosaur. How did he get 10 years? <laughs> yeah. And then we share. We became little therapists, you know, with 30 days sharing insights into life. <laughs> but it was all good. And, I, and I'm actually... I don't know if the right word is proud, but I guess grateful that none of us were chasing skirts, a bunch of guys together. We were all done. And we knew that was going to be a distraction. Let's get to a meeting, let's get to a meeting, let's get to a meeting, let's get to a meeting. And what he describes as basketball coach talks about how he took over the Lakers, if anybody's a basketball fan, many years ago when the Lakers were, you know, showtime. And they were kind of broken up. And he took over this team. And he had them buy into this philosophy that if you were the star player, that player was just important as the guy coming off the bench because it was a team. We need the guy who plays defense, who doesn't get a lot of headlines. We need the guy who passed the ball, doesn't get a lot of headlines. You're just as important as, say, Magic Johnson, who's getting all over Sports Illustrated. We're a team. We've got to do this together. And it was one for all, one for one. And they started to win. They started to win. They started to win. And they weren't interested in, in headlines. They weren't interested in money. We're winning. When we show up, we have presence. We look good. We sound good. We play well together. We're getting recovered. <laughs> it was innocent client. No one checked the headlines. In fact, there's a great story. Magic Johnson was given one of the biggest basketball contracts in, in, in the history of basketball. He didn't ask for money. He was just given to him. He just wanted to win. He wanted to get the guys. And then you know what happened, right? After they start to win, they start to rest on their laurels. And one guy says, how come he's making more money than I am? How come you're always on the cover of Sports Illustrated? I'm not. I'm going to another team. I'm going to another team. 
I'm going to another team and the thing dissolved. It's exactly what happens in here. We start to do really well. Then we start to rest on our laurels. I need more money. How come she's getting married? I'm not. How come he's in a relationship? I'm not. And we start to look in other places to fulfill what's lacking in here now. And then you don't hear about us. Conversely, we can stay in the innocent climb as long as we're alive and sober. Because there's always something new I have found in the sacred rooms of alcoholics. And I still get excited, still get passionate about what we do. When a new guy joins the herd, you know, you get a bunch of us who may be sober a while, and a new guy joins the herd and you take him around, and he, he's just trying to get in there and you know it. And he fits in and you take him around and he gets his guy. You know, take him to the diner where we've been for the longest time and the meetings we go to. And you see him get excited about his life. Our big book says this is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. I don't understand these cats who just come to the meeting right before it starts and boogie out as soon as it's over. I can't live like that. I want to be around this stuff. My favorite part of this is going out to eat with a bunch of friends and talking about stuff. The whole fellowship thing. Because it's so opposite of my old life where it was lonely and dark and I had no friends. The only thing I knew was the liquor store owner, and when I was doing non-conference surprise dry goods, go see Flacco Apaco for a bag. Yeah. I mean, that's all I knew. And I come and talk all the I'm throwing this at me, and I don't deserve any of it. There's a great story in a book called Soul of Sponsorship, written by Father Ed Dowling, who was uh, Bill Wilson's spiritual advisor, spiritual mentor, sponsor, who helped Bill with the 12 and 12. And I don't know if I share this yet, but um, Bill's living at the uh, 24th Street Clubhouse in, in, in Manhattan. And Bill's a co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, as we all know, but he's living in a clubhouse. He's five years sober, living in a clubhouse, flat broke with his wife. And she has a day job. And he has no idea what to do. He's flat broke. Imagine being the founder of AA and having to live like in a clubhouse, like maybe one of the clubhouses in town. And they give you a room in the back, a room upstairs, that's it. And you hang your clothes on the wall by nails you drove into the wall. And you have these old milk crates where you have, those are your drawers, where you put your personal belongings. Five years sober, founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, and Bill hit this depression. As we know, Bill suffered from depression, and people thought he was drunk because he was completely untreated. What happened to Bill? Bills fell on really hard times. The co-founder of AA, and it's a cold November night, and the caretaker of the clubhouse uh, tells Bill, there's someone here to see you, and Bill's thinking, another drunk, and I, I don't want to see another drunk. I got my own stuff to worry about. I'm tired, I'm depressed, I'm angry. This is where I land there after five years. Everyone that, that in this fellowship that I created, basically, is doing great. I'm the co-founder, and I'm broke. I think I'd be upset, too. He tells the guy, send him up, not knowing it's Father Dowling. And he hears this clump coming up the stairs because Father Dowling suffered from really bad arthritis. He didn't walk well. He has a cane and he hears this, this walking. And he comes up and there's Father Dowling with these big silver dollar blue eyes. And he sits down and he was there to see Bill for something else. Something about some of the practices in AA. He's very much taken in by this. And to, to put it in a nutshell, what Bill started to do was ante up, bring forth that which was killing him. 
When we do that, we get better. When we don't, we won't. So Bill started to share all the stuff. And Father Dowling listened. It was like a fifth step. And they talked and they talked and they talked. And Bill had another, if you will, conversion, a shift, a shift in consciousness. So much so they became so close that Bill would go to him for spiritual advice. He was like his sponsor. What if Bill didn't take the call? What if Bill said, I'm not listening to anyone else? What if I don't take that one more phone call? Even when I say, I don't, I tell Marion, I, I can't take another call. Give me my phone, I'll take it. What if we don't take the call? What if we don't go on the 12-step call? AA is going to be fine, but I'm the one who's not going to be fine. So we take the call. And as Sam Shoemaker says, we stand by the door and we wait and we wait. My favorite commitment in any meeting is a greeter. It's the first person they're going to see when they walk in. Whether it's a newcomer, an old timer, or maybe someone with their family come in and say, let me see this AA thing you go to. And I got Joe with saggies and flip-flops and a hat on sideways. Not a good first impression. Head up and shoulder square looking proper at the door. It's Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a huge response. When I come here every Thursday, there's a handout, a smile, and people are dressed proper. Already the meeting's off to a good start. I don't care who's speaking. Because the people at the door at this meeting and many other meetings have respect for their commitment, respect for the group, and respect for Alcoholics Anonymous. And as a, a bit of an elder in here, I embrace that. So we stand by the door. In the third edition of the big book, it says, but the basic text pages 1 to 164 have remained unchanged. This is the AA message. Pages 1 to 164 have remained unchanged. This is the AA message. Pages 1 to 164 have remained unchanged. This is the AA message. Clear on the third edition and the old blue covers on the fly page. What message is my group sharing? What message am I sharing to a newcomer? I can share a lot of messages. There are a lot of messages and opinions out there. Bless their hearts. But the message that Alcoholics Anonymous ought to be shouting about is the message in this book and the experiences with the information in this book. If we're not doing that, quite frankly, we're not doing Alcoholics Anonymous. We're doing something, but it's not Alcoholics Anonymous. And then people die off of that. So God has given someone like me and many of us in this room a tremendous, tremendous responsibility. And that tremendous responsibility is God saying, here's one of my kids, I'm giving you to take care of him or her. What message am I passing on? Don't treat and go to meetings. After all of these years, what we have to offer in some meetings is don't drink and go to meetings. That's it. That's one, that's an index card. We don't need a big book. Just hand them out. Don't drink and go to meetings. Don't drink and go to meetings. You're cured. <laughs> but we have so much more. And what is my book, what does our book offer us in the message, in the message, is God. Because what we're doing in this message, the drunk doesn't know it. They catch on somewhere in there. They don't know we're taking them right to God and putting their hand in God's hand. They think they're going to a meeting and they're going to get better. They don't know they're going to have this moment with God and become godly. But what we're doing in this message is taking a drunk to God. That's my responsibility as an alcoholic who's recovered in Alcoholics Anonymous is get that drunk and take them to God through the steps, through service, through fellowship. Living in all three sides of the church. That is my responsibility. And when I fall short on that, I start to suffer as well. 
I'm an irresponsible, I speak for myself, irresponsible AA member. If all I have to offer is go to another meeting, make 90 meetings in 90 days, which is a wonderful thing because you get into a lot of meetings. But at nowhere in the first portion of our big book does it say make 90 meetings in 90 days. Meeting makers make it. There's another part of that, sto- another part of that sentence that they cut off. Meetings make it, meeting makers make it to another meeting. We cut it off. Treatment centers must have got involved with this one. Meeting makers make it, period, done. Oh, just make meetings and I made it. I made it. Look at me. I made it. I got 30 days sober. I'm telling you how to have a relationship because I made it. Hmm. So when I come into Alcoholics Anonymous in 1988, <clears throat> when I was brought home from Minnesota, um, I was brought to my first home group, the Free Spirit Group. And it was a packed meeting. It was a big, big meeting. And I was petrified. And someone walked me in. And I used to go to that meeting really drunk and really high. And no one ever threw me out. They would say, keep coming back. And so uh, someone heard I was in town. I was just back from Minnesota. They picked me up, took me to this meeting. And um, I found my first sponsor there. And it's unbelievable how we have a shift and don't even know it, that the free spirit group became the center of my life. My home group was that important to me. I was holding like five commitments at one time. I never missed home group. We had three meetings a week, two on a Monday. I was there all the time. I couldn't fathom doing anything else but that. It's home group. Compared to going there drunk and disorderly. And I remember one time, you know, groups have a group conscious meeting or a business meeting. One time a month. And I was new and I didn't think it was that important. So I went home. I figured that's for the old timers. I'm a new guy. I don't need to be there. And I went home and about an hour later my phone rang. It was my sponsor. But he didn't say, hi, how are you tonight? I can't even repeat to you what he said when I said hello. And he read me the writer act about how important it was for me to be attending my business meeting, to be a part of this, to get involved in service. I started to learn that the hard way like everything else in my life. I became a member of that group. I started to do service. And what I used to do is greet a lot. I used to chair and do a lot of things. I used to love to greet because I used to look for the new guy coming in. And sometimes you can spot the old timers who, who have gone sideways. You can just look at the eyes and know something's wrong. And my sponsor told me the importance of shaking someone's hand. Even if they're your friend or they're a foreigner, shake their hand. Sit next, when you're sitting uh, at a chair, look to your left, look to your right. Shake someone's hand. You don't know how they're doing tonight. And a handshake might be a band at an open wound. Don't just sit there as if AAOs you are living. Extend yourself. He says, how did you feel when you came in? People said, welcome. You felt pretty good. Now you do that. It's your time to pass this on. Eventually I started going through the work and I had something more to pass on and that was experience and information in our big book. I became useful and purposeful and people were looking for me for help. And I found that the, the role of a sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous, we have different ways of sponsoring depending on our influence and our lineage. But my sponsor told me as long as I'm staying in the book I can never hurt somebody. And so that's what I did. And sponsorship became a huge part of my life, as it ought to. See, I have three sides of my triangle, and some of us, maybe not here, are top-heavy in fellowship. We're making lots of meetings, meeting after meeting after. It's a wonderful thing. But we got two other sides, recovery and service. 
recovery in this book and service. The basic service comes of age says in, in AA is passing this message on. Sponsorship. I'm kind of sponsoring, kind of not sponsoring, kind of have a sponsor, kind of don't have a sponsor. Kind of in the steps, kind of not in the steps. Take what I want and leave the rest. You ever hear this one? Take what you want and leave the rest. I got a guy with three days telling him to discern, take what he wants, leave the rest. He's taking her. He's not doesn't want anybody else. I found my sponsor was making life decisions for me. He had to because I was incapable of doing that. You know, I'm thinking about getting a job here. Well, let's talk about that. I'm thinking about going out with that girl. Let's talk about that. I remember I went to him. I'm thinking about getting married. So let's sit down and talk about that. It was so important to me that I remember when I got married and I went on my honeymoon, I called my sponsor. And he says, I hope you don't need instructions. <laughs> he, he did say that. He's everything okay? I says, it's whatever it was, Wednesday, and this is our call time. I was out of the country. But I stayed sober another day. I didn't say, well, I'm on vacation. I don't need to, no one knows. That's just the way God has made me. My book tells me this. Practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity, immunity from drinking as intensive work without alcoholics. Intensive work. Bill's really unbelievable writer. Intensive work. It's not like here's my phone number. We're done. I'll see you at the meeting. Intensive work is intensive. Like we're going to sit down and do something. We're going to break a sweat here. I'm going to take you to the steps if you ask me to sponsor you. Because what I do is I need spiritual consent. I need someone to say, can you sponsor me? I'm not going to walk up to someone and say, I'm your sponsor, because when I confront you and challenge you, you have a right to say, I never asked you. But when you say, can you sponsor me, it's called spiritual consent, which means we signed a, a, a contract. I'm going to challenge you on certain things, attitudes, ideas, and belief systems that I must do. Intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when other activities fail. There's a few spots in our big book to survive the certain trials or low spots ahead. Go work with someone. It talks about working with others in sex inventory. And it talks about it here. Go work with the drunk. Go be of service. Go help someone. Look for the drunk. You don't have to sponsor them. Maybe you could just talk to a drunk. Because that drunk who's got one day back might be doing more service to me than I am to him. I don't know. Bill didn't know when he took the call and let Father Dowling in. It says, remember they are very ill, and we can secure that confidence when others fail. Others is pretty, pretty big. Others are family members, loved ones, doctors, clinicians, treatment centers, therapists, police officers, courts. We can secure that confidence. I mean, think about how this thing doesn't make sense. You know, Cap pays $40,000 to go through a treatment center in Beverly Hills somewhere, or Roland Hazard gets on a boat and goes to Europe and is drunk 10 minutes later, as soon as he's released. Sound familiar? But many of us come to Alcoholics Anonymous when we're done and we get this and we don't go back again. We just stay sober. 
And not only just sober, my experience and countless others have been, we stand in the light. God is the most important relationship in my life, in our lives. It's about worshiping God, serving God, practicing fidelity to God, passing that God, and not apologizing for God, shouting God from the rooftops, because that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is about. And if you don't think it is, you're in for a rude awakening. That's just been my experience. Because nothing else is going to keep me sober. My big book says I'm an alcoholic and cannot manage my own life. Drunk or sober. No human power can relieve me of my alcoholism. Drunk or sober. God couldn't. What if he was sought at my seeking? The only solution left. And what I'm doing when a drunk comes to me, I'm telling him that. I'm sharing that with him. Your own conception of God. Whatever that looks like. But it's got to be a God. Group of drunks. Good only direction. Great outdoors. I don't care. Just something. Other than a whiskey bottle. They were brilliant in AA. They didn't make it a religious thing because we've been at war. The world's at war over the issues like this. We're not. We have our differences. It's his life will take on new meaning to watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, not only in their life, but my life. I think everyone can identify with this about those lonely days. You know, that thing they used to always say to me in AA, you're standing in Yankee Stadium and it's packed and you feel like you're the only one standing in there. Marion said something a couple of weeks ago to me. When you're in that place, the world is really big. It's scary. It's you and the whiskey bottle and that's it. What do you do? And that starts to go away. We pack into the stream of life. To see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends, this is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. And frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our life. I mean, I'm sober a few years. I still get excited to, to come down here to take a road trip. I travel a lot of weekends. I hate the airports, but I love getting there. You know, go to that new meeting, go to a meeting. I get excited about that stuff. You go to a diner, we have a rotten cup of coffee and a 10-day-old hamburger. I'm psyched. Let's go. (laughs) Over the years, I've always had these drunks. You know the drunk that comes and you fall in love with them? You know, they become like your adopted son or brother. You You just love them, but they can't get sober. And you try to give it to them and you start to neglect the other sponsees and you want them to have it more than they want it. And you chase them down and you try to bring them in and, you know, bring them in and sit them down and don't leave. And they keep getting drunk. My sponsor pointed me to page 96 with guys like this. It says, do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. Search out another alcoholic and try again. I am sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what I offer. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. Those are pretty bold words, but it's reality. Because I made the mistake of chasing down that drunk. You've got to get this. And maybe a little pride and a little ego attached to that as well. When AA first started, it was, it was pretty much like that. You want this? No? Okay, we'll move on. And no time to, to waste. My book tells me, and I just want to get moved to talk about some 12-step work. Helping others is the foundation stone of our recovery. Helping others. Um, obviously, in Alcoholics Anonymous, for me, helping others. But what about outside of Alcoholics Anonymous and taking these principles into my home occupation affairs, my home? I don't want to be an AA angel and a house devil. You know, walking here like I'm Moses, and when I get home, I'm screaming and throwing things across the room. 
or there's traffic or Publix is crowded and the lady's taking too much and the old lady's counting change and got all the coupons and I'm like, hey, I'm in a hurry. How am I doing with that? How am I doing when I see the homeless person by the exits around here? I look the other way when I'm driving, pretend stare straight. I don't see them. I remember talking to a guy out on the West Coast about this. He's, he's, oh, I just pray for them. Isn't it more important to take action? Isn't praying, can't praying be just a thing to neglect someone? Oh, I prayed for them. Rather than going to your house and helping you and giving you money, I'll stay home and pray that you get money. That sounds pretty irresponsible and uncaring and cold to me. So when I see these homeless people, and I just moved to do this many years ago because I was homeless and people used to spit at me and curse at me and throw things at me. You know, mock you, ridicule you, get a job, you bum, you junkie, you drunk, you know, things like this. And it hurts. No matter how down the scale you've gone, that, that hurts. Spirit woke up and woke me up one day and says, give that person some money. My dad thought I was nuts. My brother thought I was getting, putting myself in harm's way. But I was just, when you, listen, there's one thing called motivation, another thing called inspiration. And when you're called, you're called. And so I started doing this. And I do it as often as I can. We do it. Practicing principles in all my affairs, and not only in Alcoholics Anonymous, is all my affairs, all my affairs. And I hope I have more principles than affairs, all my affairs. These principles in all my affairs. So when that ugly looking, you know, person hasn't bathed in a while, who hasn't eaten in a while, and they're a little scary to look at, they might be coming in here. And so I roll down the window. We roll down the window. How are you doing? I'm Okay. What's your name? My name's Peter. This is Marion. I'm Joe. How you doing, Joe? You know, they'll ramble off some stuff. And we give them some money. And when you do that, their world stops for a brief moment. That someone just gave me a little... A little bit of dignity... And it came from a drunk. It didn't come from a therapist. It didn't come from a priest. It came from another drunk driving by. You see that? That's what we do. That's Alcoholics Anonymous. The people did burglaries and got DWIs and were shooting dope and drinking and robbing from their family's house and all those ugly things. We get shifted in here. Where we take our time to roll down a window and ask a drunk, what's your name? And for a moment, they get a little bit of dignity, a little self just for a moment. They forget they're homeless because someone's not paying attention to that. Someone's paying attention to the soul in that person. That's God's work. Oh, we can get up here and talk about the big book and let me get on a soapbox and recite the big book and break down the big book and talk about mechanics and do all this stuff and drive right by one of God's kids. Your big book's empty to me. But if we did this and did things like that, did charitable things, gave to our community, ah, now I'm practicing principle. Now, as Joe and Charlie would say, the big book comes alive. And more importantly, it's the chopping wood and carrying water. I'm not looking for applause. We're not looking for applause. I'm not going to go tell everyone, you know what I did today. It's just what we do. That's an awakened spirit, taking care of God's kids. What we do for the least of them, we do for him. 
And I see these folks. At one time, they were little infants and they were the cutest baby on the block. Mama had the cutest baby on the block when they were little infants. They got there. How did they get there? How did I get where I got in 1988 living in an abandoned building? How did I land there? That's where they are. It wasn't, that wasn't the game plan. What am I doing to bring them home to us? The lost sheep. The sheep herder will leave 99 behind and go get one and go get one over and over and over again to bring them back. Because he's that important just as much as the other 99 or the 12 step call. It's late. I'm tired. I worked all day. It's 1130 at night. 12 step call. Now. He had to get drunk now. (laughs) He's shooting dope now. How dare he? Mash is going on. (laughs) What do we do? Where are you? I'm on my way. See, you can call up your therapist on a weekend in the summer. You get their answering machine. You call up your doctor, you get the answering service. Call for a haircut appointment, they make an appointment for you. Call up your dentist, make an appointment for you. Well, we have next week open. You call up a drunk, this is what you hear. Where are you? I'm on my way. Self is self-centered, self-seeking, self-absorbed. It's all about me, pride and ego. The flip is, I'm on my way. I'm on my way. And I've done those calls when the drunk is, you know, puked on you. I've done those calls where you have to throw the drunk in the shower to get him to detox because they soil themselves. And it's icky, you know, being with a couple of guys and getting a drunk and have to undress another guy and throw him in the shower. It's icky. He soiled himself. You got to dry him off. You got to get him dressed because he's completely out of, out of commission. And put him in the car and take him. And you drop him off and tomorrow morning he's drunk again because he AMA'd. That's what we do. And you go do it again. And you go do it again. And we do it again. I do not have that kind of endurance, but God gives me and us that kind of endurance and that kind of strength and that kind of courage to go do work like that. And here's the neat thing about it. We do not, we do not stand in judgment of that drunk anymore. We get angry with them, we'll holler at them, we'll bark at them, whatever our methods are. But we won't say, oh my God, you're drunk. Because what I look at is a reflection of me of what I, where I could have been if I even survived. So we go do it. I remember the very first 12-step call I did. I was brand new, just home from Minnesota. And um, this guy was an old-timer. Um, he had a station wagon. You guys remember station wagons? And um, we picked up this guy, Jerry who died. He died in the street like an animal. Guy looked like Christopher Walken. Really sharp looking guy, tough guy, but alcoholism and drug addiction devoured him. And he died like an animal in the street. It was sad. He died of, uh, of AIDS virus is how he died. Um, just disintegrated his whole body. And um, we put him in the back seat. And I'm petrified. I don't, I've never done a 12-step call. I read the big book, but I never did it. I read about 12-step calls in here. Like if I read a manual on how to fly a jet, I could study the manual for about six months and tell you every mechanism in in that jet 
but you're not getting the plane with me to fly because I've never been in the cockpit to say, okay, let's go. I didn't even know what to do. So this is the first, here I am, I'm going live and I had an old timer and he kept telling me, don't worry about it, just watch and learn. And we put this guy, Jerry, in the back seat and he's kind of giddy and talking, then he's crying. Then he's giddy and talking and he's crying, then he wets himself. Then he's kind of passing out and coming to. Then he's hysterical. This is in all in about a 40 minute drive to the hospital. I'm white as a ghost. I don't know what to do. And we take him in. We gave the nurse some cigarettes and some cash in case he needed something. And the next morning he was out on the corner uh, panhandling. And then I call my sponsor and I says, what went wrong? He says, you stay sober. I says, yeah, he says, nothing went wrong. You stayed sober. Would you be willing to sponsor? I says, yeah. He says, nothing went wrong. This is what drunks do. We get drunk. But you just gave yourself another day above ground sucking air and sober by helping one of God's kids, yes? In a vision for you, and I'm running out of time already, vision for you talks about uh, the best 12-step call I've ever read. And it's Bill and Bob paying a visit on Bill Dotson. Bill Dotson's laying in a detox bed, what we would call now a detox bed, the hospital bed. Been there many times, chronic relapser, to use like modern language, chronic relapser. Beats up nurses, just a bad cat, but when he's sober, he's wonderful. And he knows he's hopeless, he knows that the, 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 the jig is up, that's it, I'm done. I'm never going to get sober. And Bill and Bob, they bring, him, uh, they bring Bill Dotson down to this uh, uh, private room from the ward with the other drunks. And when you went to the private room, it meant you basically bought the farm at this point. And he comes to and has Bill and Bob, two imposing characters, looking down in bed. He says, who are you two guys and what do you want? I would have right away thought it was the FBI. I says, I did something, they really got me. You know, they dressed different back then. They dressed suited up and they wore hats. Imagine coming to and seeing two guys over six feet tall with fedoras and suits on looking at you. Give me a drink, please, right now, you know. And see, they tell him we're here to give you treatment for alcoholism. They didn't give him medication. They didn't tell him to go to group. They didn't ask him for his insurance policy. They didn't have him beat up a pillow to work out his inner child. What they did was this. Bill and Bob took an hour to tell him, the drunk in the bed, their story. That drunk in the bed was about to keep Bill and Bob sober, and Bill Dotson and the drunk in the bed don't even know that. Their life depends upon, their sobriety depends on working with others. That's what they did. Then they told him about the physical allergy, basically. They told him about the mind, what happens to the mind. Then they lay on him while he's laying in a detox bed, not 90 meetings in 90 days, about the spiritual program of action, the answer they found and how they did it. You know what happened to Bill Dotson after three days? He told his wife, fetch my clothes, I'm leaving. He didn't AMA, he never drank again. They ignited his spirit. He never drank again because he did this. And those two drunks told him about this. While he's laying in the detox bed, he was a little coherent. They said, now we go in. And sometimes we wait. It's too early to do the steps. You're not ready yet. You just got out of treatment. You just got a detox. You're not ready yet. That goes against everything in this book. And that's why maybe so many of us are dying. So I've had the honor and really the privilege of doing these 12-step calls. It didn't feel that way when you're doing it. You know, when the junk's getting sick on you or soiling your car or you got to throw him in the shower or he's cursing and improper and things. You know, this isn't a privilege. This isn't a, this isn't a pain in the neck right now. But it is. We live life forward and understand it backwards. 
I'm grateful for the men and women who were here when I got here and are still here when I show up. And that now includes the youngins. Because it'd be awfully lonely if I walked into this big room and no one was here. Did you ever go to a meeting? Some of the guys have been around here a while. And for some of you, the meeting's closed that night. And you walk in, your meeting's closed. It's like, my meeting's closed. All of a sudden, they're like, my meeting's closed. Everything comes to a stop. I wanted to get to that meeting. That meeting that I don't like going to with the rotten cup of coffee. Suddenly, I need to get to that meeting. Because when I got here in 1988 in Minnesota at the Three Legacies meeting specifically, they knew I was new. I was inappropriate at times. I didn't dress prop. I didn't have clothes to wear. And all they did was love me. Keep coming back. And I kept coming back and they would say, hey, Peter, come sit with us. And I start to have this fellowship around me that suddenly these people, I mattered to them. And I'm staying sober and staying sober and staying sober. I was given dignity. I was given integrity. I was given humility. I was given a direction. I was given a purpose. I pray I never forget that because I'm sober a few years. My family gave me things like that, integrity and dignity. When I didn't deserve any of it, they kept just giving me this to breathe life into me. And who orchestrated all of it was our God. I'm going to get Joe and Frank and Bill to go work on Pete and breathe life into him. I'm going to give his family another day of courage, strength, and direction, a little bit more endurance to breathe life into one of my kids because God doesn't have stepchildren. And that's what he did. And little by slowly, I turned around and had my first AA birthday. How did I get here? And I got up to the podium and cursed. I dropped a few F-bombs. I didn't, I didn't know any better. And when the meeting was over, my sponsor says, you know when a sponsor does this? You're in trouble, Right? And we went into the back. He says, what was that all about? I says, what? When did you decide to start cursing at a meeting? And he made me get proper quickly. And so I stand by the door. My whole life, Marion, we do this separately but together. And I think I could speak for Marion when I say our whole life is service. Our, our whole life is service. We give until it hurts and then we give some more. Like the, the gym mentality, one more rep, just one more rep. One more lap around the track, just one more. It's the calling. Motivation would have died out a long time ago. A life of service is somehow I get soul food, I get fed, I get fed, we get fed. With all the challenges, this has been a, a week where, you know, the phone's blowing up and a lot of moving parts and just a lot of stuff going on. And I found myself, you know, getting pushed, but there was an undercurrent of, I got it, I got it, God, I got it. Just breathe, I got it. Because if it doesn't go here, it's not supposed to go here, it's supposed to go there. I got it. And we ha I had one day where it was just everything was moving in directions I didn't plan on and I, I heard that I got it and I drove home listening to Grateful Dead everything's cool <laughs> everything is so cool this message this Alcoholics Anonymous this fellowship that I get to belong to uh, is my life I've gotten to travel the globe to do things like this a punk kid from Brooklyn, on invitations. I get to sponsor men who have some days more courage than me, their sponsor. 
I get to do this walk with a woman who was put in my path that I never, never even saw coming, but I always dreamt about. A relationship with my dad and my brothers that was, uh, you know, 30-something years ago, was there was nothing. You know? And I work every day. And I show up for life. And it's not because of me, trust me, it is not because of me, it's because of this loving God. I was given a book years ago, and uh, I found something in the book that I always like to share with 12-step. It does, it's not about AA, it's not about a 12-step call, but if you hear it, it is. And this is what the author writes. <clears throat> May I become at all times, both now and forever, a protector for those without protection, a guide for those who have lost their way, a ship for those with oceans to cross, a bridge for those with rivers to cross, a sanctuary for those in danger, a lamp for those without light, a place of refuge for those who lack shelter, and a servant to all in need. That's all I got. Peace. message. Let's thank Peter M. one more time. Okay, so now Ryan for the secretary report. Um, hi, I'm Ryan, and I'm a recovered alcoholic secretary. Um, I just want to bring Peter up again real quick. Got, uh, so this was Peter's last session. Uh, so we just want to thank him for sharing his experience, strength, and hope with us for the last three months. So I think this gives you the full set now, I'm pretty sure. Um, we got some magnets in here, also limited edition, and just a limited edition bookmark. Thank you very much, Peter. Um, in keeping with the seventh tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going around. Um, I've asked Jared to read the recovered statement. We read this notice to explain why many people in this group identify as recovered rather than recovering and what it exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. Hey, I'm Jared. I'm an alcoholic. Jared. Recovered. We are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered, but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime, but we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in the body. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Um, 1940s, big, uh, 1940s style big book sponsorship from the forward to the second edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75% success rate. Uh, can I see a show of hands of recovered alcoholics? Awesome. 
Uh, is there anyone here that needs a sponsor? If you could just raise your hand. Uh, if you could just stand up. Awesome. Uh, so just talk to any one of those people that had their hands raised earlier. Um, they'll help bring you back to God. <clears throat> um, please join us Monday nights for our big book study meeting where the book comes alive. Uh, we have fellowship at 6.30, and then the big book study starts at 7.15, and that's in the third floor uh, in this, of this building. Um, and then we have CDs, mugs, and large print big books, uh, and little red books and big book dictionaries for sale in the back. Um, and then there's a couple announcements. Um, so we got uh, Broward County Intergroup. Uh, this like gives you the information for all the office hours and how to get in touch with them. Uh, great place to get some literature, medallions, anything you need. Uh, we also have some volunteer opportunities up here. Um, AA's Got Talent is coming up. Five, five months, guys, so you better get those routines ready. Um, we have gratitude dinner planning. Uh, so that's on a, the dinner date is November 2nd, uh, so I guess there's a lot of planning that needs to happen before then. Uh, we got the fifth annual Gratitude Days. Uh, that's coming up Friday, November 9th. Um, then we have the uh, annual Broward County Intergroup Picnic on, on Sunday, November 4th. Um, we, they're also looking for volunteers for that, so you can see my man Fred in the back uh, if you can help out with that. And that's it. Um, so just a quick reminder, uh, there's a 75-foot no-smoking vape zone in front of the doors. Uh, we do have smoke buckets set up down at the end here, so if you could just smoke down there, that'd be awesome. Uh, they have the Boy Scouts upstairs. Um, and we meet every Thursday, starting promptly at 7.15, and we ask that you be courteous and ready to begin at the sound of the bells. Uh, see you next week. <laughs>